Welcome to another episode of the I Am Podcast. I'm Johnny Wilkinson and I really appreciate you being here with me today. I've got a very special offer from our podcast partner that I don't think you're going to want to miss. As you know by now at I Am, we're passionate about exploring performance and potential. We often look at this through the body, how the food we consume affects us. And this is why we've partnered with Vivo Life, who have devoted themselves to understanding how our nutrition plays a significant role in our growth, both physically and mentally. Their products are formulated by nutritionists and are 100% natural, making them the perfect choice for anyone looking to take their well-being to the next level. A big favourite at the Iron Podcast is their Perform Plant Protein, especially in cacao flavour, and their plant-based Omega-3 made from high-potency algae oil. Whichever you choose, you'll quickly understand why Vivo Life products are award-winning when you try them out. Plus, their products are delivered straight to your doorstep via carbon-neutral delivery. Vivo Life really embodies the spirit of our podcast, and we're really keen for you guys to try the products yourselves. So they agreed to run their biggest ever discount exclusively for I Am listeners. The code is I Am Podcast, all in capital letters, which will give new customers 40% off their first order and a further 15% off when they subscribe. The offer ends soon, so don't miss out. Check out their full range of products at www.vivolife.co.uk to discover how they can help you unlock your full potential. Hi, and welcome back to the I Am Podcast, all about peace, performance, and potential. I really hope you're enjoying the series so far. So I love exploring the power we possess as human beings to completely transform ourselves and our world. The society we live in, though, requires structure and order, and these are founded upon certain values and beliefs. I find myself intrigued by the relationship we have with our society and the impact it has upon our evolution and fulfillment by how we interact with it and by how we might be able to change it. But what would it be like if society was just about bringing people together, helping to support and inspire one another towards amazing life experiences? I had a really interesting conversation with Dr. Jennifer Hinton, someone who's been investigating our economy as well as exploring alternative models for the financial system. As she's been asking herself, how we could cultivate a great deal more balance and health and well-being for ourselves and each other. When you listen to the episode, I think you'll see very quickly that she does a fabulous job of explaining everything, an even better one of making it seem like I know what I'm talking about. Jennifer is a systems researcher and an ecological economist. Her work focuses in on how societies relate to profit. This led us to discuss the present economic setup, which was an eye-opener for me. I really love the fact that Jennifer is opening minds to non-profit organisations and there are so many amazing examples already up and running, ones that are driving social projects so powerfully. I love the fact that she's so devoted and passionate about this because it's clearly her mission and I feel that she will challenge and she will instigate big new conversations. So a massive thank you to you, Dr. Jennifer Hinton, for the conversation and for the awesome experience, but also thank you to all you listening for giving me a chance to branch out a little wider and challenge a few new spaces. As ever, thoroughly enjoying this journey and your support and contribution is making it even more immense. I couldn't wish you better and look forward to catching up really soon. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Dr. Jennifer Hinton. 
Jennifer Hinton, it's great to have you on the I Am podcast. It's a real pleasure. I'm going to enjoy this discussion and exchange. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Johnny. I have got so much to ask you on the I Am podcast about human potential. And this is branching out so, so relevant and it's so, so part of it. But for me, it's definitely a, a little voyage of, of discovery. So I'm, I'm going to get you to to maybe really fill in some blanks. And there may be a few questions here that might be a few, bit of an eye roller for a few people out there. But for me, they're, they're important to establish a foundation. The first one, just if it's okay, can you give us a bit of a background or elaborate a little bit on your speciality, where you're coming at things, and also why you're so interested in that? Why the passion? Sure. So in a nutshell, <laughs> I, I did my bachelor's degree a long, long time ago in Colorado in the US where I'm from. And I did that in international relations. And I was advised to study China. And after studying the Chinese economy and Chinese culture and history for a few years, I just had kept hearing about this miracle of Chinese development and how economic growth was, you know, double digit growth, 10%, 12% per year was creating this miracle in China and lifting people out of poverty and basically solving all of China's problems. And then when I finished my bachelor's degree, I got the opportunity to go to China and teach English there. And this agency just sort of placed me in a village in rural China. I was really open to the experience, whatever it would bring me. And, you know, this was a life-changing experience for me because what I experienced on the ground was very different from wow. what I had been told about this miracle of growth and the economy solving all of Chinese problems. Because in this village, in the six months that I was there, what I experienced was the factories were polluting the air and the water tremendously so to the point where once I, by the time I had gotten there, this river that had been sort of the lifeline of the village that I was living in for, you know, generations, centuries, was full of foam from chemical pollution from factories upstream. All of the fish were dead. The farmers had no other water to use to irrigate their crops. So they were using this dangerous water. Some people were even having to drink that water. So, you know, by the time I got there, this miracle of development that I'd been reading about, the economic growth and industrial output were, were increasing and saving everybody. What was happening on the ground was it was killing off ecosystems. It was making people sick. And it was tearing the community and families apart because all working age people were being pushed to go to the city to find a job to participate in this miracle of economic growth. And people didn't see their kids for years on end. You know, they were often getting jobs in sweatshops and living in sort of slum-like conditions. So it really made me start to question this story of development and economic growth. And then sort of fast forward, I did a master's degree in, in sustainability because I realized, okay, this is my calling. This is what I have to dedicate my life to is solving this problem. This, you know, the story doesn't match up with reality and people and the planet are suffering for it. So I did my master's in sustainability science. I got turned on to the circular economy, but then there's also a contradiction there, right? Because as circular as we can make the economy, which just means that we start to recycle as much as possible and reuse as much as possible, and we start to use our wastes as input, so any sort of chemical waste that we have, if we can use it as input for new processes rather than just throw it back into the environment, 
then that's going to be really good for the, the environment and we can keep economic activity going, right? But often this circular economy is discussed as a means to achieve economic growth or sustainable <laughs> profit. And so even if we could make the economy completely circular, which we can't, that's already impossible, um, that growing circle would still require more resources, create more pollution, and you know also result in more exploitation of people. So, sorry, this is a long story. No, no, perfect. No, no, no. And so, and and obviously, I can tell from the answer that there's something in you which it feels a bit from my perspective. I spent a lot of my time before where I am now playing in sport, and I just gravitated towards sport. If someone said, "Why do you do it?" I'd say, "Because it's fun." But deep down, I'm like, I can't not do it. Every day I'm thinking about it, every day I'm here. And it's similar to my journey now and in terms of this subject, the, the human potential idea. And what you've just said there triggered something immediately in me is this idea in the world that I live in now, the big paradox or, or contradiction that needs to be married or, or realigned is this idea that performance has to come at the cost of health and well-being and that there is not this beautiful synergistic relationship between human well-being and performance and the two don't come together and suddenly we're starting to understand this as people move towards uh, more holistic and inner journeys of breathing and and they're re reframing or redefining the relationships with food and other people and the planet and what have you starting to understand that this flow that people talk about that they're in in high performance is actually an absolute oneness there is no contradiction in play and so i'm loving where this is going already however i'm going to clarify a few terms so you hear it all the time people just suddenly saying oh you know the state of the economy it's kind of interesting it's a big term when you hear that the economic situation what immediately does that break down what are we referring to there in your opinion in terms of economy sure okay so to define economy in a very broad sense, the way that I think of economy is the way that we um, buy and create and sell services and products that we need. So that's sort of the most basic broad general definition. When we talk about, or when we hear in the news about the state of the economy, that is a more specific <laughs> way of thinking about the economy, right? So we live in a capitalist economy, which for me, I define as a, a for-profit economy. It's an economy that is set up for the purpose and the goal of enriching investors and business owners and that's embedded in the legal for-profit business structure that dominates our economy today and so when we're talking about the the state of the economy or the health of the economy it refers to are investors making money is the economy a growing are profits growing and are investors getting rich basically and that's really interesting that you just even covered that there, the purpose of the economy. For me, you'd think, well, the purpose of the economy would be to have this situation where people are thriving, that people have enough, they're looked after, their their health and well-being needs are met. People are self-sufficient and able to, I guess, the best as possible follow dreams and live healthy, fulfilling lives. But the purpose of the economy, as you've just put it, actually as a thing is as a marker is our investors and business owners making more and more money yeah it's kind of it's kind of crazy when you when you you know peel off all of the other 
terms and jargon and you look at what what really is the underlying structure or the skeleton of our economy it is the for-profit economy and that's the way uh, it's set up and that's the way success and prosperity are defined in terms of financial gain and then you know what you talked about meeting human needs and meeting making sure we have healthy ecosystems all of that those are relegated to other spheres right so like public health they're supposed to be concerned about meeting human needs not economists environmentalists are and ecologists are supposed to worry about these the state of the environment not economists but it's really bizarre because we're talking about goods and services which should be produced to meet our needs so you i'm gonna this i'm desperate to, to fire into this but i still want to do a bit of clarifying you mentioned the capitalist model that we operate through and under and that being the for-profit model what about alternative models being used around the world obviously you mentioned china you know, if it wasn't capitalism what else could it be that's in place right now and how's that going yeah so i mean china I mean, you can have a lot of debates about how to classify and categorize the chinese economy i'm of the persuasion that it is a capitalist economy um you know back many decades ago before 1979 or so when Deng Xiaoping tried started to really change and reform the economy in a more capitalist direction then it was quote unquote communism although a lot of you know marxist scholars would be sharp to say that it wasn't actually ever really communism that a lot of marxist scholars say communism hasn't ever really existed in its true sense because it's supposed to be ownership of the means of production by the community for the benefit of the community and in sort of the the communist experiments that have happened in China and the Soviet Union for example those sort of communal or societal resources were sort of hijacked by a, a small group of elites so it was sort of corrupted that's why we still need to, to have a market and not everything should be state planned and state owned because it concentrates wealth and power again in the hands of a few which is then makes it very susceptible to corruption but coming back to what we have now the for-profit economy or the capitalist economy i use those interchangeably is inherently expansionary and homogenizing because those two things are some of the best ways to make profit and money for investors is you expand right you sell more and more stuff you move your production offshore where wages are cheap and you don't have strict environmental regulations and those sorts of things um, tax havens are part of it so there's this inherently expansionary tendency built into the for-profit economy and just the logic of pursuing more and more financial gain for investors and then it's also homogenizing in the sense that you know going moving your production offshore somewhere and then just making millions of the same thing over and over and over is the cheapest and most profitable way to do it so this for-profit economy which sort of just started out in a few western countries has now expanded to take over the world including china i mean it's got a very authoritarian political regime but it is still capitalism most of the businesses that operate in china are for profit and privately owned and there are chinese billionaires who are the owners of those companies so the underlying thread coming through is that the system works for a few but not for the many and with that ever growing gap between the few and the many it seems as though that's that's kind of almost, I know people talk about over the last few years of having been an even greater wealth transfer through struggle 
it seems it's through the struggle of the people that that wealth transfer keeps going. And that seems to be a bit the knock-on effect of this kind of capitalist idea, if you like, in that every bit of human struggle that may be somehow in part maybe created slightly by this or this model is then also profited or enjoyed by this model for those few to make more of a gain and it's really interesting those those health and well-being effects like you said that suddenly as you make more and more and you make it cheaper and it's less it feels like it's a massive movement away from the pre economic models you know the hunter gatherer stuff before there was this transfer of wealth or people had some kind of money to pay or exchange with it was almost like self-sufficiency but that had to be very close to the earth but now there's this um, movement into food produced quickly you know short fast gains there seems to be this movement away from indulging in the most simple available pleasures that no one has time to breathe or enjoy breathing anymore because they're after the next thing and the advertising side of that as well talking about health and well-being and environmental health and well-being is capitalism just inherently at odds with it and as we continue to think that we can improve those things through capitalism are we actually heading in basically two opposite directions are we at two ends of the uh you know, the, the magnet here yeah, and that's what I've really found in working on these ideas and issues for the last 15 years or so, is that what we're usually told to think of as externalities or unintended consequences of economic activity, like environmental devastation or destruction, like I saw in China, or exploitation, these are actually inherent features of the system. And, you know, like you said before, this economic system works for the few, sort of at the cost of the many. And that's not an accident. That's not a coincidence or something that we can address because it was an unintended consequence. That's a feature of the system. That's what it's set up to do. It's set up to enrich a, a handful of investors and business owners. So if we're actually going to address the problems of inequality and environmental degradation and climate, you know, there I'm including climate change and biodiversity loss and all of these really huge and pressing problems, we have to move away from the for-profit way of organizing the economy because that's just a systemic feature. Um, we could go into systems thinking and sort of the wisdom that comes from thinking about the purpose and the rules of a system and how over time those guide sort of fairly predictable patterns of behavior in a system. Like, you know, if you have the goal of enriching investors and business owners, then over time you it will drive inequality because there's an inherent incentive to keep wages as low as possible to profit the investors and for investors then and owners to accumulate the wealth that they receive because that's the the sign of success because the goal is financial accumulation. So as long as we define success and prosperity in those ways, and we have our economy set up to deliver financial gain to investors and owners, then it's just going to keep driving these problems. So this is really interesting because the system in play there, if you say in that economic model, it feels like something I could relate to certainly internally of a, a system within me early in my life. How do I define success and how do I view progression? And you mentioned earlier about expansion and as a way of sort of viewing expansion, there's kind of these two very 
interesting ways of it that I felt in my life. First off, it was if I add more to myself, I expand. More stuff I get, more money I get, more people know me, whatever all these things seem to grow me into a, I'm, I'm a bigger entity now. And actually, in a way, I, through the way I saw myself, that was the way it had to be. It's just the way it came out. That desire to be all I could be found its way into recognition and power and status and wealth and possessions and everything. But there's another way of expansion, which is a kind of natural expansion into letting go and you naturally expand. You know, you soften those boundaries and you expand beyond them as opposed to building bigger ones wider out. And it seems as though that with all these definitions of success as well, that, and you mentioned a bit about the corruption, is almost that within the individual, is there a system there? When you said this is the way these things have been set up, was it inevitable that with a certain way of viewing ourselves, when we entered into the economy and markets and business, we were just going to implement the inner system in the world around us? And is therefore, so I guess my question here about this, is this individual responsibility to start seeing things differently also at the heart of changing the bigger model outside? Because it seems to me that the greatest ideals that you can have about saying, well, this would be great, but if you don't change the fundamental system, it almost corrupts the ideal at some point. That people go in with great ideas and those great ideas just turn into the same old thing. Is there this need for for us to shape the economy with how we are as opposed to with our ideas that may come out of the same desire that we all might have to have more. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's this really nice movement, the transition town movement, and they often talk about transitioning away from, you know, this expansionary way of organizing communities and moving into more so, like materially sufficient way of organizing their communities. And they talk about the inner and the inner and outer transition. And so we need to have both, right? If we're going to move beyond this really destructive system, it's not only about changing things around us. There is some of that in us. And the way that I see it is sort of reinforcing each other. The outer, you know, we are socialized from when we're babies to buy into the this type of economy, to the belief system that supports it. For instance, the idea that the profit motive is the best way to motivate innovation and efficiency. And these are all myths. There's a lot of empirical evidence to show that that's not true. But they're myths that we're socialized to believe. And then as we take those in, um, we also tend to, you know, act more in those ways and carry ourselves more in those ways and reinforce them in the people around us. So there's a sort of feedback between what's around us and within us. So I think the inner transition is definitely an important part of this. When we're talking about the history of how these systems came about, I think it's also important to remember that maybe this wasn't in all of us. <laughs> so, you know, there, you know, a lot of people were pushed and coerced into this system. It's not that this was something that universally appealed to everybody who who is part of these this economy and these systems. So that's just to throw that in there, there is some complexity around. It's not that we all have this built into us. It's really interesting because I guess we have all these deathbed revelations from people of enormous wealth who, when they report on their life, they often report about the things, the regrets or whatever that 
or, or the things they wish they'd, they'd sort of done more of were the things that were available to them all the whole time, you know, to love and to spend time if they could with family and to, to give and to explore and to enjoy nature and breathe deeper or whatever it might be. But that's kind of at odds with the day-to-day grind where we find ourselves just wishing you know for that little bit more but as you said that kind of gap it seems as though those things that are so inherent you mentioned at the beginning in terms of health and well-being clean water good sort of unprocessed nutrition connecting with people around you on a level of absolute compassion and equality but it seems like the system is almost getting in there in every single way and driving people to see each other as commodities and assets and the hierarchical structure of you know of worth that's invested in this idea of what you have and what what position you hold the one of the big questions i have i guess is is anyone immune to that like we said the people that are at the top of it and maybe earning the most and might be driving it are they actually living the most liberated ridiculous incredible lives and if they were why do we keep getting these deathbed revelations and so a question i ask myself the whole time is that if someone had the answer i don't think the answer would be i found joy and peace through earning it and therefore that's why i'm going to keep doing it because they do it through earning it which is the suffering if you come to that place as i I need less i understand my worth as it is if you have that, would you be at the top of a business like that? <laughs> yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, I think you know, are are the people at the top of this system really fulfilled and happy? I think there's a lot of evidence that they're not. That there's a lot of dysfunction happening up there. Um, there are also some really interesting you know, anecdotal personal stories that people have shared. For instance, the Swedish guy who started Minecraft, this video game that my my nephew went crazy about, you know, years ago. He became sort of a billionaire almost overnight after, you know, being just sort of a middle-class Swedish guy and, you know, ended up buying a mansion in California or somewhere, I think. And then he wrote an, an article at some point, like how becoming a billionaire has been one of the most isolating, lonely experiences of his life, because then he had all of this money. But as soon as you have money, you have to sort of worry about, you know, are my new friends just coming into my life because I have money or, you know, so it actually can create a whole new set of problems rather than solving problems like it's often perceived to do. So the the myth that it will solve problems in the way that we've been told it will is, is absolutely, you know, debunked in a lot of different personal stories, but also there is research also about how money and materialism have negative psychological effects. It's, it's really fascinating. And the way that we can interact with that system, obviously this capitalism side of it being around the consumerism as well, that we're constantly taking more in, as you said, creating more and taking more. Everyone looks in their wardrobe and says, you know, geez, I mean, how many clothes do I need? And, you know, but you're still after that next thing or whatever it is as we evolve and it's never enough and it's never enough. With our choices individually, how much power do you think we have to change the economy by the way that we just simply choose to live you know you see things that trend in terms of and we're going to go on to talk about certain businesses that have different ideals and different ways of doing things but if there is a herd majority that begin to move in the travel of what we're talking about 
will the economy fight back or will it adapt? And can we change the system from within the system with simply the way that we become? Yes and no. <laughs> so I think that it's, it, you know, we have to have that individual change, but that also has to translate into being like politically active. And, you know, in terms of, I don't think the kind of economic and really fundamental deep systemic change that we need to see in the economy is going to happen unless we have sort of a collective, very organized push for it from the bottom up. Because there are, you know, this system has created a very tight knit network of political and economic elites. Every time they meet in Davos, we're reminded of this. So in order to, to sort of push them out of their comfort zone and demand. I mean, we have to demand the change we want to see because it's not enough for us to just change our consumer behaviors. That's part of it. But there are so many lock-ins on a institutional systemic level that we need those to change as well. And that requires policy changes, that requires redistributing a lot of the wealth that has accumulated in the hands of a few. And that's going to require a huge social movement push. And luckily, I think that's already starting to happen. You know, people, more and more of us are getting pushed outside of our comfort zones. The system is no longer serving us in any meaningful way. And as that happens, people are more open and even um, actively curious, seeking out alternatives and willing to put some of their time and energy into pushing for those. So I, I have some hope there. Meanwhile, something that shouldn't be overlooked is that this for-profit economy is, is collapsing in on itself. I mean, it's sort of bound to. It's eroding the very environmental basis for its own existence. It's eroding the social basis for its own existence and even the economic basis, because now we're in this, this horrible conundrum where you, if you've heard any of the economic and political commentary about this, with the inflation that's happening, which again is a, largely a result of profiteering and the for-profit way of running the economy, plus stagnating growth, we are in a really difficult position right now. There's no clear policy way to go forward and still try to push the economy to grow and deal with inflation and these other crises at the same time. So the system is weakening, which creates an opportunity for us to push for change. That That's interesting because from a, I'm always bringing it back to the internal perspective, but at some point that inner system will reach a point where it just burns itself out. Either it, it just uses all the energy it's got, it gets to the end of the line where it realizes that through this very physical idea of self, you know, like the more I have, the more I become, it reaches a wall where there's just nothing left in the physical existence, there is nothing left. And whereas I was mentioned this before, this expansion in terms of the mind and in terms of the emotional and the, and the spiritual and what have you, that, that has no wall. In fact, these walls in the physical tend to be the expansion in the other areas. And it seems as though that's maybe what might be coming is these, and I'm sure it's come many times in the past, these crises moments where there is simply no way that what is can carry on beyond this point as what is. It must give and surrender. And that surrender, like you said, out that comfort zone but I wonder with the the present system, and you mentioned about the way that things are interlocked and especially in the elite level, you would have thought maybe if the 
if the government was on you know behalf of looking after the health and well-being of its people and everything like that and then the business is earning so much money well then they would pay much much more tax which would then put more money into the coffers for making sure that all these things are looked after so you'd almost be as a team you'd be like you know go you go make your money that's brilliant because you're going to give so much of it back and we're going to do this with it and which is going to make this life so great but that doesn't seem to be the way it's working you know what how does it really work in your eyes if you if you see in that respect yeah i mean i think that's one of the big contradictions in this in one of the stories that we've been told about how the economy should work right is that the, the profit motive should motivate investors and businesses to innovate and make all this money and then the state will be this counteracting force to sort of you know create the constraints the regulations to make sure they do that in a really um moral and ethical way and then we can get taxes from what they do and then that's going to be redistributed and they'll create jobs and it's going to be great for everybody right we're all going to benefit from the system but the contradiction there especially if you're talking about taxes in the state is that that actually inhibits the profit motive that i mean so you're saying that the desire for financial gain is what drives all of these great things but then if the state is coming in to take money from that then that desire is sort of completely dampened right and that's the argument that these a lot of these billionaires and investors and, and lobbying associations that go to washington dc and go to brussels to lobby for special policies um that lower taxes and create loopholes for them and weaken regulations because they can argue that that actually that's inhibiting our profit motive that's taking away from our motivation to innovate and be efficient and so that's the contradiction in that story and a lot of people complain about neoliberalism which is exactly that it's the the weakening of taxes the weakening of regulations the increasing privatization of healthcare systems and education systems and people complain about neoliberalism as if capitalism would be okay it's just the neoliberal part is bad but actually i argue that the for-profit economy naturally tends to move in a neoliberal direction because that's just what is most consistent with its underlying story its underlying mythology and belief system it's inconsistent to try to tax the profit motive, actually. In terms of underneath this all, is there a human aspirational side to a capitalist society that allows people to have that dream about saying, you know, I want to distinguish myself. I want to rise above. I want to see what the kind of life I can have in that material side. And is that, is that, you know, I, the the sort of more spiritual journey is that I would have seen is that as a child you maybe have that longing to really buy into that identity of you know I'm going to become this identity I'm going to become this and and this is going to be great to be recognized and distinguished from everyone else through my identity and at some point that becomes very isolating very challenging very pressuring very stressful very unhappy and then it the second part of that movement is back into this idea I want to un ravel this identity and return to being a bit of a no one so that I can be everything on the outside so that I can love and connect with all those around me and become one with the beautiful pleasures of life and nature around me. I thought that might be another opportunity within capitalism for people to go out there, make their money and then say, oh, wow, it wasn't here. I had a moment in my life where I achieved all my goals and suddenly went, oh, my gosh, <laughs> there's nothing here. And then 
you think, well, maybe that's where the narrative shifts to, it's time to give back. So you see the charitable foundations sort of piling money back in, people with huge wealth saying, here's big amounts of money going back into these systems. But now even seems that those charitable foundations are not, you know, is that because it's difficult to control where the money goes or is it because actually now those charitable foundations are becoming money-making schemes, you know, is that not an alternative journey for people to make their money and say, right, at the end when I no longer need it, now I'm just going to throw it back into amazing philanthropic ventures? Yeah. Okay. So I think there's a, a couple of things I want to say here. So one thing is that, yeah, in a lot of cases now, charitable foundations have been used for, I mean, especially when they're tied to billionaires and the most powerful political and economic elites you can think of that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation and these sorts of things. Yeah, they've probably accomplished a lot of great things, but it's a great PR tactic, right? It's like, yeah, we're billionaires and we've got a lot of power and all of this stuff, but look at all the good we're doing. So then it sort of is a way of greenwashing, if you're familiar with that term, sort of saying, okay. you know, it's a PR strategy. And I think people get sort of disillusioned and rightly so when charity and philanthropy become part of a PR strategy that then goes to just justifying the insane amounts of wealth and power people have accumulated. It's like, no, just don't accumulate it in the first place, which, <laughs> which comes to the second part of my, what I wanted to say about that is like the idea. And this, this also goes back to your earlier question about why can't we just, you know, grow the economy, make profit, make some people rich, and then tax it, or, you know, in this case, give it back through philanthropy. And part of the problem there is that in that process of growth and accumulation, a lot of exploitation happens, right? Because by trying to maximize profits, you try to keep wages as low as possible because that's a key cost of doing business. There's all kinds of environmental impacts because just creating and selling and using products and services uses energy and resources, creates pollution. So that all has a lot of environmental and social impacts and exploitation wrapped up in it. So we should just avoid doing too much ec economic activity in the first place. And we should definitely avoid the accumulation of wealth and power in the hands of a few in the first place, whether they intend to give it back or not. Uh, let's create a system that keeps things circulating and keeps things fair and sufficient for everybody in the first place in a more natural systemic way it's yeah you you mentioned about the whole the maybe the greenwashing or whatever it be yeah what does capitalism become when it's done absolutely genuinely and authentically in the name of planetary sustainability better health and well-being and life experience for people as a whole better connected for relationships and for global communities and for operating more in a peaceful way. What's that shift? Because I know this is something that's very much at the heart of you and, and we're moving away from profit, I guess. Yeah, so, and this is the model that I've been working on for the last um, 10 or more years, which is an alternative to the for-profit economy. So it was a really big aha moment that I had with a colleague when he presented to a group of us back in 2011 or so. He had bumped into this company in Australia where he was based that was a civil engineering company, and they were building bridges and 
buildings and making more than 20 million Australian dollars per year in revenue and all of the profit, so all of the surplus that they made after they paid wages and all of that for their machinery, all of those operating expenses, the extra money that they made, the profit, went to an, the indigenous community, the aboriginal community that owned them. So there were no private investors getting rich. There were no private business owners. It was a community benefit company, basically a company set up just for the benefit of a whole community. And then, you know, for meeting the needs of that community, we'll come back to human needs again, I'm sure. But this sort of set off an aha moment for us, like, okay, so business doesn't have to be profit-oriented. It doesn't have to be about making investors rich. And if that's the case, and we started to sort of scan the horizon, we started to find not-for-profit businesses like this all over the place. And we thought, okay, but then maybe we can imagine an entire market economy made up of not-for-profit businesses. And so this was just an idea that I had to dive head in, you know, full on into because it was just so exciting because it's not a capitalist economy anymore. There's no capitalists, you know, accumulating the wealth in that kind of system. But it's also not this state planned communist model that we talked about earlier with the Soviet Union and China, where it sort of concentrates wealth and power again in the hands of a few, the, i.e. the government. Rather, this is a distributive, decentralized market like we have now, but it's all oriented and every piece in it is oriented towards meeting social and community needs. And then we can imagine that kind of economy wouldn't have to keep growing, you know, sort of compulsively like our for-profit economy does. Instead, all of the profit gets circulated back to where it's needed most in these social benefit missions that all of the companies have. And also then the state rather than being sort of this counteracting force that it has to be in the for-profit economy, can become more of a partner with the market. And both are seeking to satisfy social needs in different ways. And so there's much more complementarity between businesses themselves in the market and also between the market and the state. And it's all about making sure everybody has enough and that's, again, just in material terms, you know, goods and services. And then when we talk about needs, we need so much more than material stuff, right? We need connection with ourselves and with each other and with nature. And that kind of economy leaves the space for meeting our needs outside of the market. Whereas the for-profit economy we have now is constantly trying to convince us that we can meet all of these other needs through the market, through buying the next big thing, right? That will make us feel fulfilled or special or whatever it is. But this not-for-profit type of economy acknowledges that actually not, the market can't fulfill all those needs. Those needs need to be fulfilled in community with others and with ourselves. Now, this is where I'm going to sort of maybe come across as, as missing the point in some ways, but I'm looking at this from a perspective of what would this look like for variation in terms of all different types of people getting involved What's driving people to set up different businesses? What happens to ownership? You know, if you're running a business and it's doing this and it's doing that, and suddenly you say, you know, I'm, I'm a bit sort of okay with this now. I, I want to move on. I've got these ideas I want to do. What happens to that business? What happens to people going out there and doing different things? The motivation will be to follow what you love doing, follow your passion. What happens to businesses that don't work where people aren't that interested in the products? What happens to failing businesses, if you like? What, how do all these things fit in on a more sort of micro scale? 
in terms of the um, ownership, let's start with that. Ownership is sort of a tricky term when it comes to businesses because we often use it in two different ways to refer to two different things that I like to keep separate, that I think are actually, it's essential to keep separate. So one is control, the control of the, the company, and the other is the financial ownership. So that's where you have the the rights to receive the profit and the assets of the company if you sell it, for instance. And so in a not-for-profit business, and like I said before, these businesses already exist. These structures already exist around the world. A lot of the time, it's just a, a non-profit foundation that owns a business or is operating as a business. Um, and so there's no private financial ownership of those companies at all. So you can almost think of it as they don't have financial owners but they still need to be controlled and managed right somebody's got to be managing them so there is still that aspect of ownership and that can that happens through all sorts of different forms you talk about diversity you can find worker directed nonprofits so there's much more democracy in the way that they're managed or just sort of top down ceo cfo and that sort of more corporate way of managing them if they're really large um, so there's a lot of diversity in the control aspect of ownership but the financial ownership is always sort of collective you can say because all of that profit and asset have to be used for a social benefit so then we can talk what happens when they fail, right? Because they do fail. All businesses have that risk of maybe failing. It actually isn't so different from the for-profit structure in that, you know, the, the company will dissolve. But instead of a private owner being able to, to take the assets that were part of that company, the assets will go on to benefit the community in a way that is tied to that company's social benefit structure. So again, that's great because what this means then is if we zoom back out to the market level, the entire market becomes a bit of a social safety net. Right now, you know, the market is sort of a scary place where you have to find your spot or you'll slip through the cracks and you might end up homeless or whatever it is. It's, mm. it's kind of scary, right? But in a not-for-profit market, the market itself becomes a social safety net where all of these businesses are using their surplus and assets to largely meet the needs of the disadvantaged and help people. So there's a lot of not-for-profits, for instance, retraining and reskilling workers to get back into stable jobs. There's a lot of not-for-profit businesses working to help sick people who can't work, to help people facing homelessness, all sorts of things, right? So the market itself becomes a social safety net. And then also the state can be strong in that type of economy as a safety net as well. So there's not as much fear associated with businesses failing that's where i'm getting to with that yeah okay and what about would there, would there still be sort of discrepancies or differences between people's earning potential then or would those come closer you know would you have people earning salaries way up here and would there still be that kind of wealth gap or would that be shortened or closed because of this as well well it would definitely lead to to more equality because you, we've sort of stopped what what i call the wealth siphon <laughs> via for-profit business you know there's those dividends of profit getting siphoned out to the hands of a few right now and that's a systemic feature so once we take that feature out then we stop that that siphoning of wealth um, so that's a really key part so that would already result in higher levels of equality than we have now but i think you know that's where i talk about the not-for-profit economy as necessary but not sufficient we need a lot more in addition to this sort of transition away from for-profit forms. We also need massive redistribution of wealth. 
there is some evidence that not-for-profit businesses tend to have a, a smaller ratio between the highest paid employee, like a CEO and the lowest paid, for instance, like a janitor who cleans the floors, which tends to just be part of the not-for-profit ethic that managers are willing to get paid less so that everybody else can get paid more. But I don't think we can rely on that alone. I think, you know, then we, we also need to have measures that sort of push companies to make sure that their pay gaps and their pay ratios are as small. Not, you know, it, we're not going to ever have perfect equality, and maybe that's not even desirable, but, you know, some sort of reasonable ratio, say 1 to 10 or 1 to 15, we can sort of democratically decide. But in a lot of for-profit companies right now, that, that ratio is 1 to 1,000, 1 to 700. Um, you know, it's it's clearly wildly out of line with what what we need so and the vision beyond this in terms of 100 years down the line or or 200 years what does the landscape look like what happens to housing prices does it mean that you know we see very much a difference in the number of big houses versus smaller houses you know what about i mean obviously the environmental uh, thriving would be absolutely immense but if people don't have that huge chunks of wealth coming from selling this and from a private ownership of this yeah you know, what does the landscape for you look like down the line will it will it look like a different world yeah i think it will look and feel completely different from what we have now i mean there's a, there's going to be a lot of familiarity like i said before we still have businesses markets and banks and money but just the fact that we're not caught up and pushed into participating in this rat race anymore, that we will have the space, both figuratively and literally, to meet our needs outside of the market. You know, right now, if you want to go just relax somewhere, for a lot of people living in big cities, there's nowhere to really do that for free. Um, maybe there's a park here or there, but most of the time you have to go to a coffee shop and pay for a coffee or something. Everything has become, you know, monetized to some degree. So so sort of shrinking the economy, especially in high income communities like we live in, um, would mean that we also can create a lot of more like open spaces and communal spaces where people can hang out. And with lower levels of poverty, then a lot of crime goes down with that. Places become safer, easier to to really enjoy. <laughs> and um, with housing prices, like you mentioned before, a lot of the reason we're having housing crises right now and such crazy inflation with housing prices is that is the profit motive and profiteering, right? It's speculation. It's trying to get as much out of it as you can. And so that's kind of created this huge gap in housing where we have a lot of the newer developments going into really high-end luxury housing because that's where the developers can make the most money. So again, it just makes sense from a for-profit perspective. But from a human needs perspective, it's exactly the opposite of what we need. We need affordable housing for everyone, right? Yeah, it's also nice to think that those little cheeky bonuses you kind of feel when you're walking through the park and someone's handing out things for free you're kind of like oh you know this could be a feature where you know these projects if that becomes more of the environmental or the social kind of driver is to connect to people is to more of a, a community interaction i'm just picturing going down the park and it you know and it, and it being a sort of like you know it not being a an eight nine pound coffee on the side which you know which over time you sort of think yeah i'd really love to sit here with a warm drink but you know that more that 
I guess, sharing of people sounds it sounds very exciting. What's it going to take to align from our perspective? What's our role in this? Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think this can be top down for a few reasons. First, like you said, it wouldn't work because people can't, you can't push this out of people, but also because the economic and political elites that are holding the system in place and would cause those top down policies are not going to be the first ones to buy into it. I think, you know, this might be overly optimistic of me, but I think we might be a lot closer to this transformation than it seems on the surface. Because when I go around talking about this model and these ideas a lot, and maybe it's also a bit of a generational thing because I see it especially with younger people, but they're like, this is just common sense. Why isn't the economy already organized like this? You know, why do we have a for-profit economy, which is sort of nonsensical or absurd when you when you contrast the two? Um, so that tells me that, you know, this already aligns a lot with what a lot of people already want. It's more to me about really highlighting the myths that we have right now and then the structures that we have right now that are for profit that we most of us don't even know about it's like water you know we're the fish in the water and we don't even know that we're in water so just showing the water that we're in this for profit water i think is the first step and that's very powerful because most people aren't aware of it and then debunking the myths that hold up the for-profit way of, of organizing the economy. Um, because I don't think it's something that's necessarily inherent in us to pursue that. I think it's more that we're taught to do that because that's what being successful means. That's what prosperity means. But once we start debunking that, and I think it's easier and easier because it's clearer to more people that they're never going to get there anyways. The system is sort of rigged against them. So I think yeah, we might be closer to the transformation than, than we realize, because this is really common sense to a lot of people. I certainly know in my times when I feel most challenged and most sort of triggered internally that you find yourself very much becoming quite uh, manipulatable almost in terms of, you know, you'll go to those things, whether it's the certain foods that you, I was talking about making those choices that might help prosper the slightly more, connected health and well-being based ideas but you tend to go the opposite way when you're feeling that way you go to this pharmaceutical industry will help you sort of try and fix it with a with a pill which then keeps you on that that sort of pill for a, a while or i was going to mention the tech industry and the the films and everything the entertainment is brilliant but it's it's sort of leading you in that space but then you also look at the internet we're talking over the internet the ability to share relatively you know, at low cost to share and create communities and access people from all around the place and share ideas. Is that going to be a big part of this going forward, this kind of ability to to work from anywhere, to have that agility, adaptability in terms of creating this new energy and, and movement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think on a couple of different levels as well, because I mean, like I said before, I don't see this kind of large scale transformation, especially on the more structural policy level happening without a really strong social movement. And that sort of connecting through the internet, connecting through different sort of apps on your phone and start, you know, that allows us to organize in much more sophisticated ways as social movements and push for these kinds of changes. I also think that that's a, an important part of building up alternatives. So you talk about, for instance, tech, but building up alternative tech solutions like Mastodon being an alternative to Twitter now, and it's gaining more and more users. 
those sorts of solutions come from this distributed in internet space, right? And it's interesting with tech because a lot of the owners are some of the the most for-profit incumbent elites, but the programmers <laughs> that work on tech are actually usually quite radical. And like you mentioned before, they don't want their ideas to be captured and sold for profit and to just make a rich investor even richer. Um, and so there's like this whole open source movement among programmers and tech-savvy people. And I think there's a lot of hope in that because they're creating alternatives through which we can better organize our lives outside of the for-profit system and start building up this alternative society and economy. Looking at the internet now in that respect, there's lots of people making businesses out of just themselves. Literally, the overheads being the production value of a camera and it's their message that they're selling. What happens when you have not-for-profit, but your business is essentially you? Yeah, this is an interesting, like very specific case that the current not-for-profit structures, I haven't come across a really good way of of dealing with sort of being a freelancer or, you know, a sole trader. But I think that doesn't mean that we can't create ways, right? So I think the yeah. way that I, I have been a, a freelancer before and the way that I always thought of it in, in as being a not-for-profit freelancer is that, you know, what's the salary I need every year to have a sufficiently comfortable life for myself? Sort of set that salary, maybe it's like, well, I was living in, in a crisis hit Greece at the time, so it wasn't very high. <laughs> um, but whatever it is, you know, maybe it's 40,000, 50,000, whatever per year, you meet that and then you think of everything over that as your surplus. And what are you going to do with that? What's your social benefit mission? And then you can reinvest, you know, for social good or environmental good, your, your profit, your surplus as a freelancer. But it's interesting though, because you mentioned about the freelancer. I mean, as a sportsman, you're a freelancer. You are, you're either salaried, but in your own way, you have an image and your image, that's how you earn money. And your overheads are like, well, what's an overhead? It's my image. My overhead is, I just have to be me. And so you're almost like, yeah, you said it's really interesting. Where do you draw the profit line yeah. to say, well, this is enough. And then you go, well, this is enough, but actually I'd love to live in this house. So it'll be enough once I've got that house. And you're like, well, hold on, I'm just becoming a capitalist, a capitalist inside my own head. I've got people who are thinking, you know, who are leading my discussion into, that's not enough, wait till we get that. But to properly just give in and say, look, I'm not going to have enough. I'm never going to have enough. But what's enough is to spend that moment and see people enjoying themselves, like be part of that team spirit we're talking about. I think that's, that could be really exciting. And and just just to sort of, come to a point now of talking about you mentioned not for profit businesses that are already out there i know patagonia being a very interesting one in the clothing space that's been on this mission but presumably there's a, you mentioned already there's a lot more that are doing incredible stuff for social projects as well yeah there's i mean there are so many so there's really old ones like uh, the yha in the uk that you're probably very well aware of so it's operates hostels and different sorts of accommodation and recreation venues. And then they use all of their profit to help kids get out of the city and experience the countryside. Um, and they've been operating for like 85, 90 years, I can't remember. Um, so there are these old ones, but then we're seeing the whole sort of flourishing of, often they call themselves 
social businesses or social enterprises and we're seeing new legal types even being introduced like the community interest company limited by guarantee in the uk and so this really is i see moving in the right direction quite quickly um, we see the increasing energy put into credit unions and ethical banks that are moving in a not-for-profit direction like you mentioned the patagonia example i love because it's an example of a really big well-known international company moving away from a for-profit structure to a not-for-profit structure to sort of prove that yeah this is possible for large international companies to do and then there's a, another movement that I was turned on to this summer, which I think started in Germany or somewhere in Europe, and now it's really spreading across the world, called steward ownership. And that's basically helping companies and encouraging companies to make that sort of move that Patagonia made. So helping existing for-profit companies to move into in the not-for-profit direction through what they call steward ownership. Um, so it's a movement that's taking shape in a lot of different ways and a lot of different geographies on the big level on a smaller level you know a lot of these not-for-profit businesses are community-based so there's a lot that fly under the radar and it's hard to to find them from my position here because there's language barriers and all of that but it does seem to be growing very rapidly and one thing that i want to do in the, the coming years is you know try to bring them together around the vision of them being transformation agents for moving the entire economy in a not-for-profit direction. Because I don't think many of them are thinking in that way that the entire economy can and should be not-for-profit. So that could be a really powerful transformative thing. I think one really interesting place to keep an eye on these days is Amsterdam because they have taken on this donut economy model. I don't know if you've heard about that, but they're I've, trying I've heard, to be I've, heard, I've heard briefly of the donut economy, okay, yeah. but I wouldn't be able to make any comment on it. No, at it's all. great. So, I mean, just in a quick nutshell, it's like meeting the social foundations for well-being within the planetary boundaries. So it's trying to like fit in this donut where everything is going well. And Amsterdam has been the first city to try to become a donut city. And they're really taking wow. this on in their urban planning and all of their policy making and stuff. And there's also an, a pocket of not-for-profit businesses and entre social entrepreneurs that have reached out to me who are really interested in, in the not-for-profit model. And so I think Amsterdam's a place to watch right now because there's just so much happening. That's kind of cool. But also that does have a bit of a spirit amongst the people that is... It, you know, certainly just from anecdotally, people don't go there to build the most enormous mansion in the middle of it where they've got this. They're almost like, no, no, I want to get out on the streets and, and just walk and have a have a coffee and be amongst public and people and gently walk by the river and yeah, and go for this or that. So it's it's kind of, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, ambitious and like laid back at the same time. <laughs> I think what's really interesting, I think quite exciting for me is that looking at this now, if there is no monster payday at the end it really pushes you back to realizing that the point is you have to enjoy what you're doing yes. you have to have passion for what you're doing because actually this idea that i'm going to suffer through this to get to my joy at the end the same way looking at working for retirement and this again is going back against that deathbed revelation of the rich and famous you know saying i wish i'd just enjoyed every moment rather than thinking it was all waiting for me at the you know with the the retirement and the boat and the port whatever it is i think and and that also leading perhaps it to be driven by actually if i can make profit my passion will be i've got this big thing i want to do with that profit 
rather than it being I want to make loads of money and also I've got some charitable things but then when you're earning the money you're thinking yeah I'll get around to those charity things oh actually I will get around to it oh I never really did it anyway here's a bit of this because you're too swept up in it the whole point is I know whatever profit I make I'm going to get a chance to invest and I will invest it in these projects and therefore you've got the passion of enjoying the work and the passion of what you want to do with that connective tool if you like for a, for a better environment I, I, I do really really enjoy that it takes away that whole just surviving for your you know for your liberating moment at the end definitely yeah yeah and and it's not only about the profit either i mean most not-for-profit businesses you know and i would say in a sustainable economy all of these businesses would you know the product or service that they're providing on a daily basis is also clearly socially useful it's clearly benefiting their community so it's not even just about what they do with the profit that is it that's inspiring but also what they do every day you know we, there's like a not-for-profit bakery that has sort of a dual mission of providing healthy organic baked goods for the community and it helps workers who might have a hard time finding employment so workers who have maybe a criminal background or some sort of disability or something and so it's training these workers helping them get back into the workplace and providing healthy food you know so every day that you go to work at that bakery is just so inspiring i'm sure you know and so there's like these kinds of businesses that it's not just about what happens with the profit that's inspiring but every day is something that you feel like is purposeful and meaningful. I definitely think that it's a pleasure to buy a product and you know it's making a difference elsewhere. I think that's that's absolutely fabulous. But I also think it's interesting, I'm gonna ask you, do you think people are, are quite enjoying consuming or, or buying products from places where they know that actually there isn't this huge money person at the top who's taking it all, that they enjoy just even, even if the, you know, there isn't that, you know, everyone you buy, we give one to so-and-so, you know, that kind of idea where you feel like, oh, wow, this is making a difference. Is it even just nicer to know that actually there isn't someone at the top who's just getting richer and richer through your fund? Are people gravitating towards those businesses? Are they succeeding? And if so, is that is that perhaps the trend going forward? Yeah, I mean, it seems so. So I don't have any hardcore data on this, but you can see it in terms of one, not-for-profit businesses are more clearly advertising themselves as not-for-profit. So you start to see it more clearly on their websites, on their products, and we're not-for-profit. So it's like a selling point for them. And the other thing that you can see is the, the for-profit economy and a lot of for-profit businesses are starting to sort of, you know, oh yeah, like you said, 1% goes to this charity or, and you know, that's part of the reason they're doing that is clearly because they, they know there's a customer base that wants that. So I think that it's definitely a, a selling point that is in favor of not-for-profit. Well, I have to admit this has been very, very challenging for me because it's, you know, even just as soon as we ventured into the, the idea of this, it's, it's so connected. And I certainly feel this has got the capacity to open up some things you can't even think of now but you know like you said 50 years down the line we could be looking at a very different earth and and people connecting to each other in very different and perhaps deeper and more you know holistically respectful and grateful way so it's it's fantastic what's next for you with this so you got plans to continue to to push through on this is that the is that the goal 
yep, I am going to keep moving forward with this. I'm currently working on a book um, to try to, you know, get this vision out to a broader audience. And, you know, I think that's one of the, the key ingredients for making this transformation happen is just planting these ideas in more minds and equipping people's hands with these tools. So that's a key part of this. I am also working in my research at Lund University on um, sort of a menu or a buffet of post-growth ways of organizing economies and communities. So the not-for-profit market is one, and there are many other ways, you know, things that we can learn from communities around the world that exist today, that have existed before. Um, so I want to sort of zoom out so that it doesn't feel like just the singular solution, but it also is compatible with a lot of other things that already exist and ways of moving forward. So. Yeah, well, I think uh, having discussed a lot of the inner system versus outer system stuff, I think I definitely feel that the creativity is coming out within that softening of those boundaries, those rigid black and white, this is how it must be done, is suddenly becoming an ever-moving, shifting, creative, spontaneous process of why not. And the effect is far, far greater. In fact, it's on a different level, even dimension to the sum of the parts. It's got nothing to do with the parts. And I think this is kind of what the exciting thing is, is we kind of know that the capitalist idea of it's black and white, this to this to this to this, we know where that's going. We've seen where it's going. We can see where it's going now. We can have a good guess at where it's going in the next hundred years. But what we, what we need is an inspiring system which actually creates that emergent form that we can't think of, but it comes out the goodness of you know, of wanting to share without it having to be a new tactic for more recognition, more wealth and more, you know, distinction in the future. But yeah, it's, it's really, really powerful. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for walking me through some points, which may have been grade one for you. It may have been entry level, but it's very, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. I, I do thank you for your time, Jennifer, and good luck with, with the book. And uh, yeah, we'll be following and everything you do in the future as well. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for a wonderful discussion. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, the executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. That's all for this week's episode of I Am. Before you go, a big thank you to Vivo Life, our podcast partner, who deliver affordable, natural and UK-made supplements straight to your door. Vivo Life perfectly embodies the principles we're discussing here at I Am, and we're excited for you to experience their products firsthand. As a special offer for our listeners, they're currently offering their biggest sale ever. Use the code IAMPODCAST, all in capital letters, to receive 40% off your initial purchase and an additional 15% discount on subsequent orders with a subscription. Visit www.vivolife.co.uk to explore their complete range of products and discover how they can help you unleash your full potential.